Well, good morning. It is a blessing to be here today, and thank you for the opportunity to speak this morning uh, in our time together. Uh, I'm so glad to see both friends that I've known and to be able to make some new friends that the Lord allows us to have uh, over the process of our life. So thank you for being here today. Thank you for your kind introduction. Uh, I was thinking uh, of a church that I preached here recently, uh, our good brother Mark Powell at the Covenant Reformed Baptist Church. Now, I have never preached at a Reformed Baptist Church until I preached at that church. And uh, I appreciated the way they prayed for me that morning. They said, the preacher, Lord, the preacher is a crooked stick. (laughs) Strike him straight. So please pray for this crooked stick this morning that I will be able to be straight in the preaching of God's word today. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 12 as you're turning there. Uh, First of all, it is our blessing to be able to uh, serve alongside with sermon audio audio here on the campus. Um, It is unique to have partnerships, third parties on a college campus, but it's not that unique. We have Chick-fil-A next door, so if we can have Chick-fil-A, we can have sermon audio for sure. And... um, but one of the things I, 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 as Stephen was speaking, I was thinking of Hebrews 11, where it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so this is a venture of faith. I do hope that you'll go over. Don't leave the campus without going over to see the home of Sermon Audio. You can walk straight across the campus to what's called the Mac building. It's the library upstairs, the School of Health Professions on the first floor, and Sermon Audio is there on the second floor. Um, The only way I can describe it is is it's one of the coolest places on campus. And you're going to walk over there, and you're going to go, this is really good. This is cool. And so I hope that you'll be able to do that, get over there. And if you're going to go that far on the other side of campus, stop by the seminary building, which is right next door, and walk into the rotunda. It's newly renovated. And uh, we, are, we have a thriving seminary. And if you are uh, interested in any graduate programs, we have full graduate online programs. One of our, one of, one of our, our two key programs are going to be our Master Divinity, our MDiv. And then secondly, our Biblical Counseling Program. And uh, I would like to say that uh, our Biblical Counseling Program is extremely strong uh, in our viewpoints of biblical counseling. So uh, you can check us out online at BJU Seminary and stop by and check that out. <clears throat> Just a little background on the history of Bob Jones University. I would not expect you to know that. We are in our 96th year. We were founded in 1927 by an evangelist named Bob Jones. When the school was started, it was at the tail end of the what we call the fundamentalist, um, well, it was really at the beginning of the fundamentalist era, but it was at the tail end of a period in our country where there was a great growth in the establishment of Bible colleges, Bible institutes, Moody Bible Institute, Bible Institute of Los Angeles. And most of these, there were about 50 schools that were founded from 1880 to Uh, the late 1920s, and they were founded at the time in our history where we were going through a great battle in the mainline 
uh, Christian denominations over liberalism, much of it coming out of uh, higher criticism out of Germany. And so during that time, there were you know, thousands of believers and churches that were in mainline denominations where their denomination was moving to a liberal position on Scripture, denying the authority of Scripture, especially the miraculous elements that you find in the Scriptures. And so therefore, the people that were Bible believers that were in those groups uh, began to identify with the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And so therefore, they were called fundamentalists. And so the fundamentalist modernist controversy at the time, the modernization of the gospel, um, the idea of the rejection of the supernatural and so forth. So Bob Jones University was founded at the tail end of that era, 1927. Uh, it was very interesting. Dr. Bob Jones Sr. was very good friends with a man named William Jennings Bryan. And William Jennings Bryan, if you know anything about him, was a great American statesman, a believer. And he was a part of what was called the Scopes Monkey Trial in Dayton, Tennessee. And of course, that was a watershed issue with evolution uh, being taught in public education. Well, uh, Dr. Uh, William Jennings Bryan died about a week or two after the Scopes Monkey Trial. And a, a group of preachers gathered together in Dayton, Tennessee and wanted to start a school in memory of him. And uh, one, of the men, one of the men that were there was Bob Jones Sr. And he sat there and he listened. And of course, he was an evangelist, so he understood pastors very, very well. And he knew, understanding the nature of pastors, that it would take them a long, long time to actually get a school started. By the way, they did start a school called Bryan College. But he decided that at that time he would go it alone. He felt like the need was great because he was disturbed about the negative influence of the secular and liberal education in the United States of America and its negative impact on Christian young people in the 1920s. Think about that one. So he wanted to start a school that was a liberal arts college because he felt like there were plenty of Bible colleges uh, in the country, and uh, he wanted to start a school that had a liberal arts college emphasis, a liberal arts education emphasis, but was training people to serve the Lord. So in 1927, the school was founded. It was started right outside of Panama City, Florida, and that was uh, one year before the Depression. And in 1933, they lost their property. They ended up moving to Cleveland, Tennessee, where they uh, had a school there, which today is now Lee University. And the school grew, and they outgrew the facilities, especially at the end of World War, War II. And so in 1946, they began a building project here on the campus where we are now in Greenville, South Carolina. And uh, it, they, they built 13 buildings in 13 months. And this building that you're sitting in was one of those buildings. Uh, it was constructed by the Daniel Construction Company. When they built these buildings, they built them like tanks. And the reason I know that is because I, we've torn down one of those buildings, and it was a very difficult project to do to get the building torn down. So we are not going to tear down these buildings. We're going to remodel these buildings uh, because they are sound, they're solid, and uh, we're just going to make them look brand new on the inside. So when the school was founded... It was founded with the intention 
of, uh, and there were some very clear focuses and emphasis. And of course, the first and the most important was the authority and inspiration of the Bible. And so for the last 96 years, we have tenaciously held to the belief that the Bible is the infallible, inerrant, inspired Word of God. It is sufficient for life and practice in all things. And that to move away from that is to destroy your foundation. And so we hold to that tenaciously. We say a 97-word creed every day in chapel. Uh, Schools don't have to do that to stay orthodox, but that was a part of our foundation, and we have not changed that. So every day our students say a 97-word creed. Obviously, they have to believe it in their heart, but it is a a testimony of our faith. It was founded as a non-denominational school because he was an evangelist, and he worked across denominational lines, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterians. His mother was a Presbyterian, his father was a Baptist, and he was a Methodist. So go figure. And uh, so that's sort of been the history of the school. Non-denominational is not like what you think of non-denominational today, like a community church. Non-denominational means that they are, we are not affiliated with any single one denomination. We're not, we're not a member of this group. We're not a member of that group. Uh, we stand on what we believe, and then we serve the churches. Uh, the history of school has always been culturally conservative, so we view ourselves as serving the conservative side of the church, people who love the Lord, people who believe the Bible, people who are committed to the authority of Scripture, they're committed to Great Commission living, they're committed to raising their families for the Lord. So hence, 82% of our student body are either go to a Christian school or they're homeschooled. In fact, is 40% of our student body grew up in a homeschool family. That's why we're still the world's most unusual university. Uh, because you just don't get that in a normal school setting. Um, so th- that's, that's the history of school. Our emphasis is always on three major things as far as a student academic excellence, a biblical worldview in all things, and the development of character. We're still old school in education that we believe character development is a part of your education. So yes, we do have rules here at Bob Jones University. Uh, I don't think they're oppressive at all, and I don't think they're permissive. We, We really try to have an atmosphere that is conducive for healthy spiritual growth, and we have a strong emphasis on the Word in daily preaching in chapel. Most of our preaching is expository sermons, And uh, we have a very strong emphasis in discipleship. We have uh, about 400 different discipleship groups on campus. And then we have a very strong emphasis on the local church. We're not a local church. We don't have a local church here. We require our students to go to local churches in town. If we're going to be legalistic about anything, it's definitely about the local church. We do not believe that you can have a good Christian education, come and get a biblical worldview, and not go to church. It doesn't make any sense. So we, we, we say to our students, if you don't want to go to church, no problem. Just transfer as soon as possible and go somewhere else. So our students spread out to 190 local churches in the upstate of South Carolina with the desire to be a part, a faithful member of a local church, and to serve in that church because we believe that's a part of their education. 
There are five entities to Bob Jones University. There's the university. We have about 2,500 students on campus. We have our online program called SCOPE, the School for Continuing Online and Professional Education. We have an academy here, K through 12, uh, grade 12, uh, with about 12, a little under 1,200 students. Then we have the BJU Press, which produces material for both homeschool and Christian school education. Uh, the press has been greatly blessed over the last three years. We have grown 70% in three years. And two of the greatest blessings that have come to us uh, to help us grow is COVID and President Biden. And we give thanksgiving to God for all of those things. And we are so thankful to the Lord to provide all of our needs according to his riches and glory. So uh, that's, that makes up Bob Jones University. And then the, the, the fifth entity is our seminary program, which is training men and uh, uh, men for the ministry. And of course, we have ladies that are involved, especially in our biblical counseling and some of our other majors there. So that kind of gives you a big picture. And uh, please pray for us because, as you well know, the challenges today are great. Um, uh, the cultural uh, issues today that a, a university faces is very different than a local church. So our position, if whatever you think is conservative in American culture, we is. That's who we are. And so all of those pressures will come upon us in whatever area, and not just the outside, but also the continuing work with students on the inside, helping them develop a biblical mindset in the way they think about life because they come, many of them from Christian homes, but very influenced by a secular worldview. And so the biblical worldview is at the very core of their education. So enough about Bob Jones. I don't mind talking about it because I'm just a steward. I'm like Joseph. I'm a hired slave. So uh, I, I'm happy to serve here as long as the Lord wants me to. And I'm glad that we can be a part of what God is doing there. Romans chapter 12 this morning, I'd like us to look at verse 2, and I'm going to attempt to do something this morning that has been a part of my education for the last two years, and that is every morning I get up and spend time in the Word, in prayer, and uh, I try to read a Charles Haddon Spurgeon every single morning. And so if you've never read Spurgeon, first of all, you have to get in his mindset. Once you get in his mindset, it's not that hard. But the second thing you have to handle is the ability to sit there and be humbled every day at what an idiot you are when you read his sermons. I mean, you're going, I am like the worst person ever when I read what he has to say. And his ability was to take statements in scripture that you know, but you haven't thought very deeply about. And he does what we do in modern technology. He can take a scriptural text and zoom it in And he zooms it in, and then it is an explosion of truth that is found throughout the whole Scripture. So I'm going to try to attempt to take a Spurgeon approach to Romans chapter 12 this morning as I speak to you on the theme of the transformation of the believer. Romans chapter 12, we read in verse 1, he says, Paul is writing, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and acceptable, and perfect 
will of God. May we pray. Father, we pray for your help. Lord, we are all unclean vessels. And all that we say is unacceptable except through your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the perfect one. And Lord, may the words come through your Son and through your blood to our hearts by your Holy Spirit to work in our lives and to transform us into your image. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul in Romans 12, 2 commands us as believers to be transformed. The word is metamorphosis. It's like a caterpillar that goes into a cocoon. And then two weeks later, it breaks out transformed into this stunningly beautiful butterfly. It's like the transfiguration of Jesus on the high mountain when his face shined like the sun and his clothes became radiant as brilliant, bright, white light. This is a description of the Christian life. It is a transformation. And Paul says to us, all of us, you be transformed. But immediately that statement that Paul gives us here presents a dilemma. You say, what is that dilemma? Well, in this phrase, it's very clear that the subject is the believer, you. He says, you be transformed. So he's talking about all of us. The verb itself is in the present tense, so it is something that we are to be experiencing right now. Today, at this moment, we are to be be being transformed. It is a command. It's an imperative. In other words, it's not an option. It's an obligation. It is that, that pressure that we all feel to be obedient to God. And there is a spiritual pressure that God places upon us by the Spirit to be obedient. But there is a huge dilemma. And that is the voice of this command is in the passive. Do you know what that means? That means that the subject, you, if you're in the passive, something is being acted upon you. You are receiving a verbal action. You are receiving a transformation. It means that you are being commanded to do something that you cannot do, that someone else must do it to you. You are being commanded to be transformed by someone else. And then who is that someone? And that someone is obviously God. So he is commanding all of us to do something that we cannot do except God do it for us. So the question is, how does that work? In the very next phrase, it says, be ye transformed. Then he says, by the renewing of your mind. Now, typically the word by there 
is what we call a preposition. So you can read it this way. Be transformed through the means of the renewing of your mind. That's what you would normally get if you look at it in the Greek language. In this case, there is no preposition. What Paul did was to me is very interesting. What he did is just laid down two nouns. He says, be ye transformed. And then he says, renewal. And then he says, mind. And what he is doing is actually in those two nouns explaining to us how it actually works. The first noun is referring to the divine side of the transformation. He is saying it is a renewal. Like we would say an inner city renewal. It refers to something new, something different, something superior, something higher. It would be like taking a building and you have the outside stays the same, but the inside is completely transformed. It's changed. The second word is the word mind. What he is saying here is that Jesus is the transformer. He is the renewer. And the location or the sphere or the realm of this transformation in you takes place in your mind. And the word mind there is referring to the way in which you think. It's like the demon-possessed maniac who was delivered from a legion of angels by, uh, of devils by Jesus. And afterwards, the local people saw him doing what? Sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed, and in his right what? His right mind, his right nuance, his right way of thinking. He was thinking completely different. And so Paul is saying this transformation involves this whole new way of thinking. I was saved as a freshman in college. I grew up here in South Carolina, Columbia, the capital city. I went to college in Charleston at a school called the Citadel. And I got saved my freshman year. And my whole brain changed. The whole way of thinking about life. So how does this work? It is this transformation that Jesus does in our life. And he does it in the realm or the sphere of the way in which we think. Now, it's one thing to know this because I don't think I'm saying anything new to you this morning like you've never heard this before. But it's another thing to experience this. I think most of us understand that our living level is generally lower than our knowing level. In other words, it's one thing to take the elevator to the top floor but most of us take the, 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 uh, the, the elevator to the lobby floor. And we understand that because there are many things we know, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're living there. We are more like the maniac than we are the master. 
And we often feel like we have run out of the good wine, you could say, the joy of the Christian life, and we are more like the wine that is of a lower, lesser level that we read about in the wedding feast of the Cana of Galilee. So let's go back to the point. How does this transformation work? And what I'd like to do is zoom in even closer. And I want to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And I want us to see this morning from the experience of the Apostle Paul, the one who wrote Be Transformed, two transformative experiences that he went through that I actually believe that we go through. And these are experiences because it is an experience, because it is the Lord renewing us in the framework of our mind. And I think we will see this morning through Paul's own experience how it is that he transforms us. The first transformative experience that Paul went through here is an experience of exaltation. And I'd like to read, I'm reading out of the ESV here, and I want to read beginning in verse 1. Note Paul's words. He says, I must go on boasting. He's being facetious here. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, it will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ, by the way, he's referring to himself, who 14 years ago was called up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body. He did make a point there. I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Paul went through an experience. We would all acknowledge this is an experience. Um, I don't think anybody here could say that you've had this experience. Now, you may have had an out-of-body experience. That's called sitting in church occasionally on Sunday, and then your mind goes somewhere else. <laughs> you understand that? He actually said, I don't know if I was in the body or out of the body, but I was called up to paradise, the third heaven. I was called up to glory. Maybe on earth, the, any, the only way that you can, anybody had that experience may have been the high priest walking into the Holy of Holies or Peter, James, and John when they saw Jesus transfigured. But he said he saw things and had things revealed to him that no one else has experienced and they were unspeakable. Now, when did Paul experience this? When did this take place? Well, he tells us, he says it was 14 years before he wrote 2 Corinthians. When did he write 2 Corinthians? Well, we know the conservative viewpoint is that he wrote it from northern Greece, Macedonia. That's where uh, Philippi is located. Probably 55 or 56 A.D. And so, of course, if you take 14 years from that, that's somewhere around 41, 42. Well, if you know the timeline of history, Jesus was crucified and resurrected about 30 A.D. The Apostle Paul was converted three years later, about 33 A.D. If you know his history, he spent the first three years in the Arabian desert in seminary. And so that's 36 A.D. He comes back. He ends up going to Jerusalem. He's there for only two weeks. He meets with Peter. He meets with James. 
And then he ends up going back to his hometown, Tarsus, in the region of Cilicia, in what we know today as Turkey. He gets there about 36 AD. And we know it's 10 years later, a guy named Barnabas comes and gets him, 46 AD, and takes him to begin really his public known ministry in Antioch of Syria. So if you back up the timeline around 41 AD, it was during this time, we call those the silent years of Paul as he's living in Tarsus, which I find this to be very interesting because it's the only time that we really knew of what he was doing in his life at that time. And he is having this incredible unique experience. But let me say that Paul's experience was not without precedence. For we know that certain chosen men in both Old and New Testament were given dreams and visions of the Lord. Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Gideon, Solomon, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. Ezekiel saw the will. Daniel himself had multiple visions as you read, especially the first, well, the entire book as you read it. Amos, Zechariah. The, then you come to the New Testament. Obviously, Peter had a vision. Was he not praying and a sheet was let down from heaven with all kinds of unclean animals on it? What about John's revelation? Was that not a vision as he wrote from a cave on the island of Patmos? And Paul himself had more than one vision. And Troas, a man of Macedonia, said, come over and help us. In Corinth, in a night vision, he was preaching in the city and he was not seeing the results he wanted to see. And the Lord encouraged him that he himself had many people in that city. And then, of course, we have him here being called up to the third heaven. Here's my point. That certain spiritual, special, godly men sought God in prayer. And God gave them the special privilege of seeing him in a special, unique way. Now, here's the question. Can that happen to us today? Well, from the standpoint of new revelation, the answer is no. Because the Bible is a closed book. And he condemns us if we try to add to it. So obviously, there is no new revelation. But what did Jesus say about the pure in heart? What shall they see? Will they not see God? What did Paul say in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18? But we all, with open face, beholding as in a mirror, a glass. And by the way, that mirror is the word of God. Beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed. It's the exact same word, transformed. Into the same image. What image? What you see in the glass you are being changed. That is, God is doing something in you. And he is changing you from one glory to the next glory, from glory to glory. That is, may, may I make it simple? 
You get up in the morning and you do, you do whatever you do. I don't know what you do, but here's what I do. It's real simple. I get up and have a shower. Why? Because that's resurrection from the dead. (laughs) Second thing is I make coffee. Now, you don't have to be, you don't have to drink coffee to be saved. (laughs) But you might have to drink coffee to be spiritual, okay? (laughs) So I make coffee. And I sit down. I used to take my Bible, now I take my computer. Logos, to be specific. And for the next hour... You spend time in reading the Word for the sake of getting some glory. Like Moses did when he went up on Mount Sinai in the presence of the Lord, and he was with the Lord, and when he came down, what did people see on his face? It was a shining presence. He was a changed man from from being in the presence of the Lord. So... Will I have a vision like Isaiah? Will I receive new revelation like Paul? No. But everyone in this room who knows the Lord and spends time in the Word with a humble heart seeking the face of God, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous truths out of thy law, what is that? That is an experience of exaltation. And what I mean by that of exaltation, it is being exalted into the presence of the Lord. And God has granted every one of us as a believer that we have because of the indwelling spirit and because of the written word we have, the, we have the Word of Christ. We have the Spirit of Christ. And as we meet with the Lord in the Word every morning, it is an exalted experience of being in His presence and seeing His glory. And as we see His glory, we are being transformed. The renewer is changing the way we think because we see the Lord in the book and we see Him and we begin to change the way that we are thinking. You know, it really speaks really bad of our minds that we are of such a nature that we we can't handle just one glory, one glory view. We have to have it all the time because we understand what it means to come close and then slip away. The high point of my day is in the morning. Sometimes it goes downhill real fast after that. And I believe that we see in the Apostle Paul this experience of exaltation. Of course, we read that and we think, well, I can't really experience that and understand that. But everyone in this room It's transformed as you spend that, may I say, exalted time with the Lord because you're lifted up to Him and to see Him in His glory. So Paul had this experience of exaltation. But then secondly, I want you to note 
that he also had another transformative experience, and he tells us here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 7. And that is, he has an experience of humiliation. Note verse 7, he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. God gives Paul a thorn in the flesh. Why? Because it became a tool, an instrument, a means through which a process could take place. That process we call progressive sanctification, but it's a process through which God transforms us. So on the one hand, Paul says, I was exalted. And on the other hand, he said, I was humiliated. And in both cases, a transformation was taking place. And what is it that Paul needed to be transformed in? Well, he needed to be transformed in the way that he was thinking. And what is it that had to change? He had to change from the natural um, response to become, being exalted, which was conceit. And God said that you need to be transformed to think in a way that you don't naturally think. And that is you needed to think in a manner of humility, a humble mindset. Think about it. How, e how easy is it to be conceited? The word conceited means to be puffed up with the implication of disparaging others. You understand that. I'm smart, you're... I'm strong, you're... I'm rich, you're... Sure. So God took Paul through a transformational we could say low-leveling process. He took him through a process in which he was literally changed into becoming a more humble person. So what was that process that he took him through? Well, I think it's the process that we all go through. And it's a four-fold process. Number one, the first element of the process and. I'm going to keep it in alliteration terms. You understand alliteration, the past, the present, the future. You understand how that works. So the first word is the word pain. I'll go back and reread what I've already read. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. Paul said he was given, he was gifted a thorn. The word thorn means something that brings serious trouble and difficulty, something that is truly painful. And he called it a thorn in the flesh. So what did he mean by flesh? Well, the word flesh in the New Testament in particular the meaning of the word is determined on the context. For example, it could refer to the human body. Job said, in my flesh, I shall see God. It could refer to human strength. 
Paul says, having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh, by your own self-efforts? Or it could mean sinful, inherent, corrupt human nature. Paul says, for I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. So he says it's a thorn in the flesh. So what is it? Is it a physical problem? Is it an emotional problem? Is it a mental struggle? Is it a spiritual problem? Is it something that he couldn't get over? What was it? Well, we don't know. Paul doesn't tell us. But that gives us the widest application. Because it could, it could be one thing or it could be all of the above. It could be a physical problem. Now, there are some of you sitting in this room that are quite young. That means you may have physical problems, but you ain't seen nothing yet. (laughs) You haven't lived long enough. You haven't lived long enough to experience new pains every day. Especially when you get up in the morning. It could have been a physical problem that caused Paul to struggle emotionally. And became a source of temptation for him in many different ways. And Paul could not seem to get over the struggle because he tried and he tried and he tried. He was sincere, but he failed. The thorn received a greater clarification of its effect on Paul. He said not only was it something difficult for him, it was a struggle, a real pain. But it was a means by which Satan harassed him or beat him down. You could say it was a means through which Satan spoke into his life. Our brother shared it this morning. Where he said said he felt somewhat oppressed. What Christian has not felt oppressed? What believer in this room has not read their Bible and you got, you got glory in the morning and then all of a sudden it started. The struggle was the mental and the emotional difficulties we all go through because of pain points in our life, thorns in the flesh and, and means by which Satan speaks into our life. But Paul is saying that it is that by this instrument, by this means, by this tool that we are being transformed. Think about it. The crucifixion of Jesus is represented in his crown of thorns and his bloody cross. And we understand that this is the doorway or what's the doorway to the transformation of Jesus through his resurrection. So he's saying that this is the means by which he transforms. But let me ask this question. Does a thorn in the flesh guarantee a transformation? And the answer is no, because God said it was a test of Paul's pride. And most of us understand that that trials are also pressures and pressures squeeze us. And when you squeeze the tube of toothpaste, what comes out? And for all of us, when we get squeezed through pressure, what comes out of us? 
Well, actually, we're all unique as, 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 as believers because what comes out is the good and the bad and the ugly. Oftentimes, what comes out is our pride, our reactions, our responses, our lust, our bitterness, our own fears, those emotions that come out. But as believers, also, when we get squeezed, it pushes us to cry out to God to overcome what we are by our nature. And we all understand this. We all understand of going through these kind of pressures and these things come out and we cry out to God. Either we can be dishonest and try to cover it up and act like everything's okay or we can fall on our face and cry out and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, help me. When Peter was tempted of the devil, Satan came to him. We know that. But what did Jesus say? Jesus said, Peter, I've prayed for you because Satan hath desired you. They may sift you as wheat in a trial. There's always two sides like the two sides of a coin, heads and tails. There's God's side and then there's Satan's side. God's side is to use the trial to build you up and Satan's side is to tear you down. One is for your edification. The other is for your destruction. And the Bible tells us that the Lord has prayed for us. What does that tell me? That tells me that God is nearest me when I'm oftentimes I'm in my greatest pain. He is nearest me and he knows me because he is my faithful high priest who understands the feelings of my, my infirmities and the struggles that I have. And so when we fall and we fail, we often are reluctant to come to the Lord because of our sense of shame. And we understand that, but that is all the more why he wants us to come to him. Because he didn't die for our righteousnesses. He died for our sinfulnesses. So the first thing we see is pain. The second thing we see is prayer. Paul said as a response to the thorn in the flesh, he said three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that it should leave me. He asked God to take away the thorn. He wanted it out of his life. That's very natural. And we learn that fundamentally prayer is the means by which God changes us. My wife said to me years ago, sweetheart, I'm so glad that you go into the prayer closet to pray. I said, why? She says, because when you're a whole, when you come out, you're a whole lot easier to live with. <laughs> prayer fundamentally is the means by which God changes things. The question is, what is it that changes? Circumstances? Well, we know the intention of the thorn in the flesh was to change Paul was to change the way his, he thought, his thinking. We know Jesus prayed three times. Paul followed that example. And he asked for something to be removed as well. He said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. However, we know that Jesus' prayer also included the complete surrender of his will to the Father's will, for he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Prayer changes things, but in this case, the change was primarily in the way Paul thought. God's goal in the thorn was to transform Paul, was to transform Paul into a humble man. What was Paul desiring in his prayer request? Well, 
probably for most of us, if we are praying about something, we, we understand that in the prayer, we, we sometimes struggle, God, do you take this away? But what we're really doing in prayer is we're getting our hearts or seeking to get our hearts in alignment with God's will. It is a natural way to think for the problem, the thorn to be taken away. If I have the thorn removed, I'll be better off. However, God's ways are not our ways. And God's thoughts are not our thoughts. And God's intention was to change Paul. That is what prayer does. It gets me in a place where I'm aligned with the will of God in pursuit of his will, surrender to his will, yielding to his control, giving up my way and giving up my rights, getting yourself in a state of contentment and satisfaction in God, regardless of the circumstance, including the painful thorn. And so prayer is the starting place where God begins to change the way I think. And that leads to the third point in this process, and that is power. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God said he would not remove the thorn, but he would give Paul something better. He would give him sufficient grace. Grace is divine enablement. It's the supernatural ability to do that which you cannot do by yourself. Grace says... You can't, but God can. And it is sufficient grace. That means it is adequate. It is more than enough. God's grace is more than enough for the pain points that you're experiencing in your life. That grace in the midst of pain can actually bring you to a place of satisfaction and contentment in the Lord. And then he tells us that he would give Paul perfect power. My grace is sufficient for you. Why? For my power is made perfect in weakness. The word power is the word dunamis, which is the word God's dynamic enablement ability. And I believe that grace and power are synonymous terms. They go together. And notice what he says. He says, he says my power is made perfect in weakness. The word perfect means that God is making something happen. Something is happening that would not happen without the weakness. And what is it that God is doing in Paul that would not have happened without the weakness? Paul is becoming a humble man. And he is being transformed into the image and the likeness Of his Lord. So the weakness is the struggle that he faces with the thorn that he's going through. And I think for all of us, we know that sometimes we go through these pain points and sometimes we get over them fairly quickly. And sometimes we live with them for a long, long time. And so it is this recognition of weakness where Paul becomes dependent on God's power. There's another term that we use to describe this experience. It's the term brokenness. To be broken means that I am overcoming self-dependence to become God-dependent. That sounds so simple. But it's not that easy for sinners to live. 
And so Paul says it is through this transformative power that God graces me to find contentment and satisfaction in him alone. And that leads to the fourth and the last point in this process. And you can't miss the last point because the last point is really what it's all driving to. And the last point is praise. For Paul's response made a deliberate choice to do the very opposite of the way he would naturally think. You see, it's the transformation of your thinking. This is not the way we normally think about a thorn in the flesh. It's just, it's not natural. But he is changing you. And that change comes to an ultimate peak. And that is when we praise God. So what does he say in verse 9? Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He starts out the chapter being somewhat facetious about the fact that he boasted about his ability to go to heaven. But what he's really boasting in is his own weaknesses because in his own weakness, that's where God's power is manifested in his life and that's what he brags about. He brags about infirmities. He brags about necessities. He brags about reproaches. He brags about persecutions. He brags about distresses because he says it's through those experiences in my life that I really experience this transformative, renewing power where God is changing me into his own image. And so, how are we transformed? We go through continual life-changing experiences. One, an exaltation. The time with Him. Two, humiliation. And we go through these processes. But it is God's way of transforming us. And by the way, let me say this in conclusion. If you're a pastor or you're a preacher you know that your most effective sermons come out of your deepest pain points. As one preacher used to say, a, a sermon prepared in the mind reaches a mind. A sermon prepared in the heart reaches a heart. A sermon prepared in a life reaches a life. This is a life's sermon. Your greatest message comes out of your deepest pain. Because it is through that the transformative power of Christ is manifested in our life. So Paul says, be transformed. May we pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning for your power and grace in our lives. We thank you for the wisdom of the gospel. That it is through being brought low that we are brought high that it is through death that we find life, that it is through humility that we boast. And we thank you, Lord, that your ways are not our ways. But we thank you, Lord, that it is through these ways that we can come to know you. Thank you for your mercy to us and your grace to us. And help us to be transformed, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.